Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. Has anyone ever asked you something like, what's the Bible about? Or have you ever wondered that question? It's a question that I actually get a lot. Um, and it's not an easy one to answer. Uh, I, I grew up in spaces where I think easy answers were attempted to be given in that space, right? Where some people have tried to reduce the Bible to uh, a set of doctrinal statements or a list of do's and don'ts. Um, but the Bible is first and foremost a story, is first and foremost a story, the story of God and the story of us, humanity. And while the concept of story is simple, actually telling the story of the Bible is really difficult. In fact, back in 2018, we spent 10 months working our way through what we called God's great story and our place in it, and we barely even kind of scratched the surface of this big narrative that is Scripture. And that's because the Bible is big and the Bible is complex. Not if you understand what I'm talking about. The Bible is big and the Bible is complex. It is two different testaments written in three very unique languages by at least 40 different authors across three continents over 2,000 years. It's also hard to summarize the story of Scripture because the Bible isn't one book, it's 66 books, encompassing at least 10 different genres of literature, which include 185 songs, 1,189 chapters, and 23,145 verses. Side note. 23,145 verses. That is why proof texting is so dumb. When you grab one of those 23,000 verses and you're like, look, this is what it means, this is what it's about. All of Christianity, one verse right here. 23,100 of them, okay? I didn't plan on talking about that. This is a soapbox. I get riled up. I haven't preached in six weeks. <laughs> Usually go 30 minutes. If you do the math, y'all are in for three hours today. That's what that means. <laughs> But telling the, the story of Scripture in a succinct and understandable way, it's not an easy task, right? But I think it's a worthwhile one. So today we are starting a three-week teaching series to help us learn how to do just that. This teaching series is called Three Trees, and it's designed to help us tell and understand the story of Scripture around three key events. These are these events. Number one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the Garden of Eden, which is what we're going to be talking about today. The second one is the tree on Calvary's hill, the cross upon which Jesus was crucified and then rose from the dead a few days later. And then lastly, the tree of life, which is the centerpiece in God's redeemed and restored world, often called the new heaven and new earth, which Revelation talks about. So you can see these three trees kind of signify these three central stories through which we can tell the big story of Scripture. And we'll spend one week talking about each of these three trees. By the end of this, the hope is that we'll all be a little bit more equipped to tell this story. But it's not just about telling this story, it's, it's about living the story. It's not just about having better answers, it's about being a part of something bigger than ourselves. As you see, because God's great story is something that we are all caught up in, we aren't just a part of this story, we each have a part to play in this story. 
So that's what we're doing for the next three weeks. Does that sound good? Not if that sounds good. Okay. If you shake your head, there's really nothing I can do at this point. It's pretty locked in, at least for today. All right, let's dive in. Our first story centers around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. Now, this story is probably the most well-known and quite possibly the least understood passage in the entire Bible. But we see it all over the place, right? It's, it's in movies, on TV, in books. It's all over popular culture. If you just ask any kind of random person on the street, Adam and Eve, talking serpent, forbidden fruit, like they'd know what you're talking about, right? This is a story that has permeated culture, especially Western culture. And if you grew up in church, it's probably the first story you were taught. Now, this is not what we're going to be getting into today, but there are really three major ways of understanding or interpreting this story. Number one, everything in it is literal and historical, including Adam and Eve, the talking serpent, the two trees, the Garden of Eden. Literal, historical, it, it says what it says and it is what it is. That's number one. Number two, the characters are historical, meaning that like Adam and Eve actually existed, but the story is more allegorical and concerned with presenting Adam and Eve and their choices as archetypes of all humanity. And then number three is the entire story is figurative and meant to help us better understand our relationship with God and with sin and all of these things. All right, now I believe each of these interpretations have both merit and difficulty, um, I have my own opinion that I'm happy to share with you, but honestly, it does not really matter for our purposes today. And so wherever you're coming into this room from, like what, whatever interpretive choices you're bringing in, whether they're from childhood and you've never really re-examined it, or they're from adulthood and you're kind of like, yeah, I've, I don't believe in any of that, right? Where, wherever you're coming in with today, I want you to try to set that aside for a second as we engage in kind of the deeper truths, the deeper meaning of this story. Because the truth of this story is not dependent on literal versus figurative or historical versus allegorical. Both the meaning and application of this story transcends all of that. Because here's the thing. This story isn't really about an enchanted tree, a talking serpent, and forbidden fruit. It's about God's intent for the world and for everything in it, most specifically humanity. Scripture uses a term called shalom to explain God's intent, God's desire for this world he's created. And shalom is often translated peace. But when we think of peace, we think of the absence of conflict, right? We think of like peace in the Middle East, peace, not war. We're thinking the absence of conflict. But shalom is so much more than that. You see, the shalom that God centered his created world around is best defined as abundant goodness, in all things and between all things. Abundant goodness, in all things and between all things. So if you think about kind of the three major categories in this first story, the same three kind of major categories we have today, God, humanity, creation, then it's not just that abundant goodness exists in, in all three of those, it's that abundant goodness exists in the relationship between all three of those. God and humanity's relationship is abundantly good. Humanity and creation's relationship with the world is abundantly good. Right? That's what shalom is. Genesis scholar Gordon Wenham says it succinctly. He says, peace, shalom, between all God's creatures and the divine presence on earth is the essence of the divine scheme. This is what it is all about. This is the centerpiece of God's glorious creation. God's perfect world is permeated by shalom. But we see pretty quickly in this story that there's something present that isn't abundantly good. 
And it's introduced to us in chapter 2, verse 9. It says this, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. So, God puts this tree he calls the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, and then he forbids humanity from eating of it. Adam and Eve can eat from any other tree in the whole garden, just not that one. Now, much has been made of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. First off, the name is odd, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We just admit that. It's a weird name. It's a weird thing to name a tree. Its counterpart is the tree of life, right? So it would make more sense if it was like the tree of death. Maybe that would have worked. God, I don't know. If you'd have told Adam and Eve, tree of death, maybe they would have stayed away longer. I don't know. But I think the name seems strange to us, right? Because there's a language barrier here. You may know the Old Testament was written in a language called Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word translated knowledge here is da'af. And our English equivalent of da'af is much more like awareness or experience. So let me put it this way. In our culture, knowledge, when we think of it, is acquired through the head, right, intellectually. But in Hebrew, da'af is acquired through the hands, experientially. It's the difference between cognitive understanding and experiential awareness. For example, I might know it's not safe to go to Death Valley in the summer because the temperatures get up to 135 degrees. I understand that cognitively, but it doesn't mean I know what it feels like to be that hot. Bad example, because it has been really hot lately. (laughs) I need a new example there. Um, It's felt 135 lately. But do you see the difference there? I can know something is not good, or I can know something is good. But it's different from actually experiencing it. So God saying, forbidding the tree is much more than him not wanting Adam and Eve to know what evil is. He wants them to not feel what evil is like. Does that make sense? Forbidding this tree is God the Father telling his children, I don't want you to live in a world where you experience evil and brokenness. I don't want you to feel that. In her excellent book called The Very Good Gospel, Lisa Sharon Harper says it this way. God earnestly says, don't do it. I want you to live life to the full. I want you and your children and your children's children to know shalom. I want you to know my love. I want you to know a lush and lavish world, a world where all relationships are interconnected and work for the good of all. A world without human exploitation and slavery, without droughts, without broken families, without domestic violence, without eating disorders, without rape, without war, without glass ceilings, ethnic enmity, structural racism, nationalism, and any other ism. God is saying, I don't want this for you. Because he loves us. So the obvious question becomes, why put the tree in the garden at all? Right? Why even give humanity the chance to experience that big list I just read, to experience evil and brokenness. I think it's because God lets us choose. God lets us choose. Day after day, time after time, he lets humanity make choices. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that God is not all-powerful. 
The opening chapters of the Bible demonstrate just how powerful he is, right? God speaks and the world is formed. He breathes and life enters humanity's lungs. But God places some of this control in the hands of humanity, his image bears. If you don't believe me or if that kind of hits you the wrong way, just watch the news tonight and see evil and brokenness that that permeates our world. Does God force people? to to lie and steal and enslave and murder? Certainly not. He urges us, he guides us, he instructs us, but he does not force us. He lets us choose. And that, y'all, is the point of the tree. And so what do Adam and Eve do with their God-given choice here? Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Now, it's not mentioned directly here, but most biblical scholars and church leaders throughout history believe that the serpent here is Satan. There's even a reference to Satan as that ancient serpent in the New Testament book of Revelation. Now, again, I get it. Questions arise as we read something like this, right? How did Satan get in to God's garden? Did he, like, transform into the snake? Did he, like, possess the snake with his spirit? Are all snakes currently Satan? Possibly. Snakes are the worst. Huh? Sorry if you like snakes. That's weird, but I'm not into it. Is all of this just an allegory, right, of how humans interact with temptation? There's a lot of things that come up when we read something like this, but regardless of those answers, here is what we do know. Adam and Eve are being asked a question, and the question isn't just about what God did or didn't say. There's something bigger behind it. Now, it's subtle, But it soon becomes obvious that Adam and Eve are being asked if they really trust God. That's what the serpent's asking. Did God really say? Can he really be trusted? It's back to Lisa Sharon Harper again, same book. The one distinction that makes this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, stand out is that it has a command attached to it. That command was the only boundary humanity had in paradise. It was the one place in this vast garden where humanity was confronted with the question, do I love God? And so the question arises with every encounter between the humans and the tree. Do I love God? Because to love God is to trust God, to choose God, and to choose God's way to peace and wholeness. To choose the tree would be to turn our backs on God in favor of the illusion of human fulfillment apart from God. I love that sentence. To choose the tree would be to turn our backs on God in favor of the illusion of human fulfillment apart from God. Now, if you notice, the serpent starts making the case that Adam and Eve can't trust God by purposefully misrepresenting God's command, right? He paints God as this harsh master rather than this caring parent. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, we would expect Adam and Eve probably to walk away at this point, right? The serpent's talking to them. That's weird. I'd walk away from that for sure. But they also know God's command, and they know there's no reason to engage with somebody who would so pervert God's command, right? He didn't say you can't eat from any tree in the garden. He said you can't eat from one. But they don't walk away. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, I'm not sure if you caught it there, but Eve actually misrepresents God's command too. She adds something onto it. God never said you must not touch the tree. 
She adds that. Eve restricts her own freedom and then blames it on God. That's a message for some of you this morning. Eve restricts her own freedom and the freedom of others and blames it on God. That happens a lot. Now, this serpent's misrepresentation, you can see in this conversation, it has a foothold now. He knows that the door has been cracked open, and so he begins to push it all the way in. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's always a little bit of truth in the best lies. And the serpent is right. Adam and Eve will experience good and evil if they eat from the tree. But they've already experienced good, the goodest good. And so really the only new thing they'll be experiencing is evil. And also they will not be like God. Because the tragic irony here is that Adam and Eve are already like God. Because they were made in his image, in his fullness, in his likeness. The serpent knows that eating the fruit won't make them more like God, but he knows the perfect way to break down trust is to convince Adam and Eve that God is holding out on them, that he doesn't want them to experience the fullness of what life has to offer. Now, the serpent was subtle at first, but now he is explicit. God is lying to you, he says. God is holding out on you. You can't trust him. And now they are faced with a decision. They toyed with it for a while. They've danced around it for a minute, but now an answer is required of them. Do they trust God or not? Verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I always think it's amazing that uh, something so momentous is so abrupt, you know? They disobey God eat the fruit, and then everything changes. Adam and Eve choose not to trust God, and God's shalom-filled world breaks. This abundant goodness that existed between God and humanity and creation is severed. Here's Lisa one more time. Genesis 3 paints the scenario that is the hinge point of history. Humanity grasps at its own peace at the expense of the peace of all. The relationships that were declared very good in the beginning are all decimated. Here lies the wreckage of that fateful moment of original sin, the moment when humanity chose not to trust God's way to peace. Instead, humanity chose its own way. The consequences of humanity's kind of dominion, the kind of rule that governs with self-interest above the interests of others, are sin and separation and death. So that's the story, and that's usually how we're told it, right? And then it ends and God's upset and they find out they're naked and he goes after them and he kicks them out of the garden, the whole thing, right? They get the curse. It's awful. So here's the big picture, though, that I want us to walk away with as we seek to tell this story but also to live this story. God's cre- God created a world defined by shalom, abundant goodness in all things and between all things. And then it was broken. Humanity broke it. And the result was a destruction of shalom. The relationship between humanity and creation was broken. The relationship between humanity and itself was broken. The relationship between God and humanity was broken. But that's not the end of the story. 
Because even in the midst of this brokenness, we still see God's grace. Even as humanity breaks shalom, God begins the process of restoring it. His great mission of restoration. Let me show you what I mean. Look again at what God told humanity about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, 17. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. What did God say would happen if they ate from the tree? Well, they would die. That's what he said. But then they eat of it, and what happens? They don't die. There's an argument to be made, right, that maybe they began to die that day, right, or they spiritually died that day. And and that all may be true, but that's not what it says. It says, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, I would almost guarantee you that the original audience would have understood these verses to mean immediate death upon breaking God's rule. And they would have been floored by this twist in the story, just like we should be. God said they would die, but they don't. In his commentary on Genesis, scholar Walter Brueggemann says of this passage, the sentence is life apart from the goodness of the garden, life in conflict with pain, life in conflict filled with pain, with sweat, and most interestingly, with the distortion of desire. But it is nonetheless life when death is clearly indicated. The miracle is not that they are punished, but that they live. God said they would die, and they don't die. Here's what that means. God breaks his own rule in favor of loving his kids. That's what that means. And that's what grace is, right? If you're familiar with the good news of Jesus Christ, you know this is far from the last time that God shows grace like this to humanity. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from a Franciscan monk named Richard Rohr, and it applies beautifully here. He says this, every time God forgives, God is saying that relationship is more important than God's own rules. He breaks his rules because he loves his kids. That's the first piece of restoration. The second comes in chapter three, verse 21. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So Adam and Eve are are ashamed of their nakedness and God gives them clothes to wear, right? It's for the first time they've been naked the whole time, but they get the, the knowledge thing and they start to experience brokenness and evil. They become ashamed and God clothes them. Now, even if that's all this was, God clothing someone who is naked. That's a beautiful example of God being unnecessarily sweet to us. He doesn't have to clothe them, right? He could have easily just left them in their fig leaves like we see in the paintings all the time, right? But he gives them real clothes before he sends them out. But he doesn't. He he notices how ashamed they feel. And even in the moments after they turn their backs on him, he displays kindness to them. But y'all, it's even more than that. Because in this culture, removing someone's clothes signified removing their inheritance. Stripping them down literally meant stripping them of their birthright and their place in the family. So when somebody would be disowned in this culture, they would not be able to take anything except maybe some raggedy clothes on their back. Anything that was kind of the the family stuff, the jewels, the coats, anything like that would be stripped and they would be cast out. You see that God does the opposite? They are naked, and he clothes them. And by clothing them, God is reinstating Adam and Eve as his children and saying they still share in his inheritance. We see exactly the same thing in Jesus' famous story of the prodigal son. Do you remember this? 
The father represents God, right? And the son represents humanity. And after completely turning his back on the father and trying to find abundant goodness in all the wrong places, the prodigal son decides to return home and ask for forgiveness. But before he can even get his apology out of his mouth, the father hugs him, kisses him, and yells, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost and now he is found. The very first thing the father does after an embrace of affection is clothe his son again, thereby reinstating him back into the family with a full inheritance. Just like the prodigal son, God affirms that Adam and Eve are his children even in their lowest moment. Even in their lowest moment. How many of us need to hear that and feel that? That even in our lowest moment, God looks at us and declares, you are my children. I love you. Now that's already amazing restoration in and of itself, but there's still one more thing, and I think it's probably the most incredible piece of restoration of all. We see it in God's words to the serpent, who we know as Satan. Chapter three, verse 14. This is the part of this curse, right? So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And listen, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In these verses, we see God setting the table for the greatest restoration story in history. God is promising a savior, the offspring of the woman, who will one day come and crush the forces of evil. God is promising Jesus. And he's promising the second of our three trees, the, the cross and then the resurrection. So this is the 15-second version of this story. You ready? God created a world of shalom and gives his image-bearing humanity the choice of trusting him and leaning into shalom or going their own way. Humanity chooses not to trust God, to go their own way, and the shalom that once permeated God's very good world is broken. But God doesn't abandon humanity. In fact, he breaks his own rules to show them just how much he loves them. The moment that humanity's choices broke God's very good world is the same moment God began his great mission of restoration. And that last piece, y'all, is so important. If you've missed everything else I've said today, please don't miss this. The very second humanity destroyed shalom, God started rebuilding it. The very second we turned our backs on God, walked away, he declared us his children. On humanity's very worst day, God came for us. When we were at our lowest point, God called us his children. Because God's commitment to us and to our good is eternal and unconditional. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on how good we are, how many boxes we check. It's not based on our church attendance. Even when we break his covenants, God keeps making them with us. Even when we break our promises, he keeps his even when we can't hold up our end of the bargain, he holds it up for us. And even when we struggle to love him, 
We struggle to trust him. He loves us. One of the Christian writers I admire most in the world is the late Rachel Held Evans. And in her book, Inspired, she says something that has become a quote I go back to over and over again when I'm struggling. And I want to end with it today in hopes that maybe it helps you in the same way that it often helps me. Here's what she says. Should all other identities or securities be thrown into tumult, should nations be fractured and temples torn down, this truth remains. God is with us and God is for us. It's a story as true now as it was then. That is the central piece of this story. God is with us and God is for us even on our very worst day. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for who you are, for your faithfulness to us, for the abundance of your love toward us, for the fact that no matter who we are or what we've done or how we've struggled or where we are on this journey of faith or how many times we've fallen short or how many times we've turned our back or how many times we've given up, God, that you remain the same. You are there that you love us and that you are with us and for us. But God, I pray that no matter what we brought in here this morning, no matter how we are feeling as we listen to this truth, no matter what we are struggling with, God, that we would walk away with the deep understanding that you are with us and that you are for us, even on our worst day. That you love us and you're calling us to something greater, to be distributors of shalom, to make a home in your love, and then to distribute that love to every single person and thing that we encounter. I pray that you would make that true of us. You would remind us of your grace. You would instill in us your hope. And you would help us to embody your love. I pray all this in Jesus' name.